For those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, we do welcome you. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. It's been a couple of weeks, two or three weeks since we've been in 1 Peter. My thanks to Vance for, for speaking over the past couple of Sundays. And yes, this is a Father's Day message. So it's also Mother's Day message. It's also a Kids' Day message. It's just a child of God message because it's from the precious Word of God. We're going to pick up this morning in verse 21. I'm going to read through verse 25. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. And then a quote from Isaiah 53, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we have been looking at submitting to suffering because Christ Jesus suffered for us, And this morning, the title of the message is taken primarily from verse 23, where Peter talks about a righteous father and also a reviled son. So as we focus on that, let's go to the throne of grace in prayer. Father, we thank you this day for your son. We thank you that you loved us. Jesus, you shared in that love because you are truly God. And the Spirit of God has shown in our hearts to bring us and teach us the truth about Jesus Christ. Elevate him today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this month is Pride Month, and you couldn't miss it. We were in, uh, you can't miss it, rather. Uh, we were at a, uh, an outlet, outlet mall here a couple of weeks ago at, uh, when we were at the beach. And this weekend, this particular weekend, uh, 16th, 17th, 18th, is Pride Weekend. So you can imagine what type of uh, just general debauchery is occurring. Uh, The word pride for this month was chosen for its blatant in your especially Christian face. Pride is the chiefest of sins. I'm going to open this morning with three quotes. They're f- two of them are fairly lengthy. One of them is not. Uh, so bear with me this morning. First one is from Augustine, who in his seminal work, The City of God, as Rome was being destroyed around 400 or so A.D., he wrote this marvelous book. It's not that long, by the way, and I would encourage you, if you ever have a chance, to read it. It compares the city of heaven, the city of God, with the city on earth, Rome. And in this particular book, he said this, Pride is the beginning of sin. And what is pride but the craving for undue exaltation? And this is undue exaltation. When the soul abandons him to whom it ought to cleave as its end, 
and becomes a kind of end to itself. There's another word for pride, and that's idolatry. Lengthy quote from C.S. Lewis in one of his books. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. That's true. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. And unless you know God as that, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, Lewis wrote, you cannot know God. Next slide. Continuing the quote, how is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God? I'm afraid it means that they are worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but are really all the time imagining how he approves of them and how he thinks them far better than ordinary people. Continuing, I suppose it was of these people, those people rather, Christ was thinking, when he said that some would preach about him and cast out devils in his names, only to be told at the end of the world that he had never known them. Any of us at any moment may be in this death trap. These are convicting words. Now, everyone suffers this supreme temptation. Two passages. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 16. We, we had this, uh, we quoted this last Sunday morning, a couple of Sunday mornings ago in our um, Old Testament reading of Scripture. Proverbs chapter 16. I want to look at two passages just briefly. Look at verse 5. Everyone proud in heart, is an abomination to the Lord. And that doesn't leave anyone out, does it? Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. And then the verse that we learned to quote, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. Then 1 John chapter 2, New Testament passage. And these are just some select ones. They're there are many, many others. First John chapter 2. <clears throat> Verse 15. Do not love the world. Pride month is the love of the world. 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that's what Lewis said. You don't know God. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. And the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, since we're in 1 Peter, go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 5, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is quoted uh, again in James' epistle. It is a quote from uh, Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 57. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him. For he cares for you. Believers ought to humble themselves because Christ humbled himself. In fact, Philippians chapter 2 teaches us that he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's what we're called to. Men, that's what you're called to. That's what I'm called to. Humility has been defined as the awareness and knowledge of my utter sinfulness, my utter helplessness, my utter poverty before the thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy. Peter paints us a a portrait here in these verses, 21 through 25 in chapter 2. He paints a portrait of a suffering Savior that was reviled. As believers, we struggle with that. As Americans, we struggle with that. Next slide. John Piper wrote three thoughts about humility. He said, number one, I call to mind that I am not self-existent. Only the triune God is. Only God is absolute. I am contingent. I remind myself that I am utterly dependent on God for my origin and for my present and future existence. The word utter is used quite a bit here, is it not? It's not a selective, I am not selectively absolute. I'm contingent upon the grace of God. Secondly, I remember that I am by nature a depraved sinner and that all my sinning, in all my sinning, I have treated God with contempt. Now, this applies to believers as well as unbelievers. Preferring other things to his glory. Does that happen to you? I know it's happened with me. It happens every day. Preferring other things to God's glory. I take stock that I have never done a good deed of which I don't need to repent. And uh, we think of that because of pride. Well, I did this and others don't. 
So I have a right to be prideful. No. He said, I take stock that I have never done a good deed of which I don't need to repent. Each one is flawed because perfection is commanded. Therefore, I realize that God owes me nothing, and here's the rub, but pain in this life and in the next. That's what we, if we got what we deserve, this will be what we deserve, pain in this life and in the next. But thankfully, we don't, those of us that know Jesus as Savior. Number three, I ponder that this condition of mine is so desperate that it could only be remedied at the cost of the horrid death of the Son of God. How serious is sin? sin? It cost the God-man his life. It cost the Trinity a brief period of separation. The horrid death of the Son of God to bear my punishment and provide my righteousness... And I revel in the forgiveness and righteousness that is mine in Christ. Remember these today as you reflect on the goodness and the kindness of God. Next slide. As we look at the passage this morning, we're going to jump to a number of passages, other passages of Scripture. But in verses 21 through 23, in verse 21, he says, To this you were I reminded you a few weeks ago of why Christ suffered. There are two basic principles that Peter identifies here. The first one is he suffered because he is our example. I reminded you that it's not my dad that's my example. Although I love him, long to see him, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ I will one day. And yes, in many ways, I'm like him. In many ways, I'm not like him. But in every way, I need to be like Christ. He's our example. That word there means, and I talked uh, about this uh, at some length uh, two or three weeks ago, it means a tracing over. It means something that gives us grammar. It's elementary instruction. So Christ is our example. He is our pattern. And we trace our lives by his life and death. We're not going off on the right wing or the left wing and doing something independently. We trace our pattern because of him. We trace our lives because of him. We examined our pattern two or three weeks ago. We learned from the seven I am statements that are recorded in the Gospel of John. We will not cover the second one here, but we, why did Christ suffer? Because he is sinless. And I think maybe the college of career class talked about this this morning. This is called the impeccability of Christ. I'm not going to elucidate on that this morning. I will uh, perhaps next week, but I'll get into it in more detail because it is an essential doctrine. And to misunderstand it misunderstands the Son of God. So Christ is also our pattern in death. Verse 23, Peter says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. How, how contrary is that to you and I? When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Pride is natural. It is so natural that 
we mistake it in others, or we can, we can readily identify it in others, but we mistake it in ourselves. A few years ago, Robbie and I and Mike and Sheila were traveling through Wyoming. It was late at night. We were looking for a place to stay. We had missed a connection. We were driving, and it was late. So we drove from uh, southeast Montana into Wyoming, and uh, we were driving. It was dark. Uh, it was in August, so it was similar to this time of year. And as we were driving, we had driven hundreds of miles, and as we were driving, we noticed this aroma. And after a few miles, and I can't smell a great deal, but Robbie and Sheila both said, You, that stinks. Well, it was, uh, we were passing through ranch land, and you can imagine what it was. Thousands of heads of cattle and their manure. And so we made it to this particular, this small uh, town in, uh, in uh, north, northeastern Wyoming, and we were able to get a room and spend the night. We stepped out of the car. It was even worse. And we walked inside, and as we began to make the uh, uh, arrangements for staying that night, I asked the young lady that was at the, uh, uh, at the counter, I said, do you have to put up with this smell every night, all the time? She said, what smell? She says, it may smell to you, but she said, I've grown used to it. That's sin. That's pride. Pride's natural. There is no antidote for it other than Jesus. And there's no better way to learn humility, which is a learned behavior. We're not born with it. There's no better way to learn humility than the seven statements of Christ from the cross. And I want you to remember this morning, proud fathers need to be persevering fathers. And that we're looking at the relationship between a righteous father and a reviled son. Next slide, if you would. So I want you to turn with me this morning. I want you to follow these statements. I know you've heard them and read them and so forth, but they are important. So go with me to Luke 23. Luke 23. These are taken in order. So this is the first statement of Christ from the cross. Luke 23. And verse 34, and it's in other passages as well. In, all of, in fact, it's in all of uh, the Gospels. Let me make sure I find it here. Verse 33, and when they had come to the place called Calvary, they, were cruci they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now, Peter says when he was reviled, he didn't jump back at them, and when he suffered, he didn't complain. In fact, the very, state, very first statement from the cross is one that we readily know. Almost every believer should know this and probably does. Christ died 
forgiving those who sinned against him. You and I were there. Not physically. But allegorically, we were there. This is the worst act that has ever been perpetrated, and I'm using the words in galactic history, not only Earth history, but in all the universe. In galactic history. If God is creator, he's creator of the universe, not just the Earth. Here we see the most innocent man, the God-man, dying a most cruel death. One who was without sin... He had no iniquity. He did not transgress the law, ever. Even in his thoughts, he did not transgress the law. He was, the theological term, impeccable. He displays no anger here. We see no hatred. We see no vengeance. In fact, if you go back, or if you look, were to look in Matthew's gospel, you would find that in Matthew 26, is that one of those, and this is Peter, who was writing this epistle, one of those who was with Jesus drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said, put your sword back to its place, Peter, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to the Father and that he would at once send me more than 12 legions of angels between 72 and 144,000 angels? But how then could the Scripture be fulfilled? Peter was angry. Peter had hatred. Peter Wanted vengeance, but not Jesus. He pleads to God the Father here for forgiveness of his enemies. Peter's writing to pilgrims. We've talked about that a number of times looking at this passage. He's writing to pilgrims that are persecuted, that are falsely accused, that are suffering, that are socially alienated, and pilgrims that were having their assets stolen from them because they wouldn't worship Caesar. How many of you have had that happen? Those pilgrims and Flat Creek are to pattern our response like Christ and pray for our enemies. The principle to learn here is that forgiveness of the people who treat you the worst. Now that's difficult. Christ prayed. We're to pray. Next slide. Now let's think about this in just a little more detail. Christ came into a world that he created. John 1 tells us this. John 1 also says the world did not know Christ. It did not want to know Christ. Has that changed? No. The Lord of glory tabernacled among men. That's a great word that John uses. Paul would use it as well. Beautiful. It means he made his abode. He set up his tent with men. But Christ was abandoned. The eyes which Christ created 
became blinded with sin, just like the smell of the ranches. Blinded with sin. These eyes saw no beauty in him. Isaiah 53 speaks to this. These eyes didn't desire him. When he was born, there was no room for him found in the end, we're told. This foreshadowed his entire life when he had nowhere to lay his head. We're told that the Gospels record a continual animosity that Christ experienced all the way to the cross, even among his disciples, even among his family. We'll see that shortly. Repeatedly, his enemies tried to kill him. And finally, God permitted that God the Son be yielded up into their hands. The Gospels record three mock trials. And each of the judges from those trials found no fault in him. Nevertheless, because they were cowards, they yielded to the crowd as they cried, Crucify him, crucify him. You see, ordinary death was not enough for the Creator. The verdict is death by crucifixion. Does he devolve into anger? Do we see any of that here? Or hostility or bitterness or pity? Does he feel sorry for himself? Does he cry out for wrath on his crucifiers, although he could? No, he prays, Father, forgive them. Now, Christ knows more than you and I that the natural man doesn't understand the things of God. We don't understand these things because we're more intelligent than those that are unbelievers. We understand these because by God's grace, the Spirit of God has spoken to our hearts. Remember that. Don't allow your pride in the Scriptures to take away the grace of God. We understand these things because of God's grace, not because we're more intelligent, not because our IQ is higher than the other person. We don't understand the things of God because we're sinful and we're blind. We have depraved human souls. Next slide, if you would, brother. They didn't know who he was. He was they were ignorant of uh, the scriptures. And Christ understands this because he knows the human heart. Forgiveness is our greatest need. If we're going to be removed from the wrath of God, we need to be forgiven. And without Christ's forgiveness, unbelievers choose hell. They make a choice and they choose hell. Christ's concern is not for himself. But for those who reject him, Hebrews 9, which would be written later, would say without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Christ knows this and prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The Great Commission in Luke's Gospel, if we turn over a couple of pages, we would find that there Luke says, Christ said, go everywhere and preach the forgiveness of sins. What a great message. What a power of the gospel 
He dies to make this forgiveness possible, and he prays for his enemies to be forgiven. Paul would write in the book of Ephesians, he would say, Be kind-hearted, forgiving one another, even as, for, as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. You and I that have been forgiven much are to be characterized by much forgiveness. We do not have the right not to forgive. The first lesson we learn from Christ's suffering, life, and death is we're to live with a forgiving heart. We're to pray for divine forgiveness to be given and shown to our worst enemy, those who have harmed us the most. Well, preacher, I don't know if I can do that. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Just remember that. Those that harm you do not know what they are doing. Next slide. Second, in this same chapter, Drop down and look at <clears throat> verse, uh, let's see, well, let's begin here. Uh, yeah. Well, we'll look at verse 39. <clears throat> then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him and said, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, when you come into paradise. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Two thieves were crucified with him. Christ is on the middle cross. Great message by Alistair Begg talking about the man on the middle cross. Christ is on the middle cross. Luke tells us twice in this passage that the criminals who were hanged there were hurling abuse at him. If you're the Christ, save yourself. And by the way, if you're going to save yourself, how about pitching in and make sure we, we're taken care of as well? I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus looks helpless and he's weak. And they cry, save yourself. At the beginning of his ministry in Nazareth, back in Luke chapter 4, when he took the scroll and read from Isaiah 61, and he said, This day, this prophecy is fulfilled in your midst. The scriptures say they contrived together to kill him because that was blasphemy. Herod Antipas wanted to kill him. The Sanhedrin and the Pharisees wanted him eliminated. And up until this point in time, the Holy Spirit had intervened any time that someone tried to take Christ's life. But not now. He's reviled. Save yourself! He's mocked. If you're the Messiah, you claim to be the Messiah. You claim to be the Creator. You claim to be the Redeemer of Israel. You claim to be the savior of the world. You say you're a king, and so where's your kingdom? Huh! You're a fraud. Huh! There's no truth in you. 
One thief sees a suffering Savior in the midst, and he rebukes the first thief. Don't you fear God? We rightly deserve the punishment that Rome has given to us. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, Begg goes on to say in this great sermon of his, this man doesn't know anything about justification by faith. He doesn't know anything about the great theology and doctrines that are there. He doesn't know anything about what needs to be done other than the fact that he recognizes he is a grave and deserving hell-bound sinner. He does recognize that. And he cries to the one whom he hopes can save him. Next slide. What's Peter saying? He's reminding those that are suffering. He's reminding you and I in the most unfavorable, feeble circumstances with Jesus the Savior at his weakest point. God saved the thief because God always does the saving. His saving power in the gospel is not at all diminished because we are at our weakest point. Mike was weak when he left this morning. God's ability to heal him still exists, but more importantly, God's ability to save him saves us at our weakest point. Third thing, turn with me to John 19. Third element from the cross, third conversation from the cross, statement from the cross, John chapter 19. This is beautiful. When you're dying, who are you thinking about? Jesus was thinking about his mother. Verse 26 and 27. Well, look at 25. Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciples, that disciple took her to his own home. Here's your son, here's your mother. He died loving his family and loving his disciples. At the foot of the cross is his mother and the only disciple that traveled with him, John. They could have heard his voice from the cross. John's recalling this as he's writing this great gospel. If you go back a few chapters in John 7, you'll find a passage that says they didn't believe in him, talking about his his family. Jesus had five brothers and two sisters. And at this point in time in John chapter 7, none of his brothers nor his sisters believed him. Now later, James and Jude did believe in him. 
But we have no record in Scripture where any of his sisters believed him. And Mary is here at the cross alone. Where are his sisters? Where are James and Jude? And others. Mary had heard Simeon back in Luke chapter, the latter part of Luke chapter 2. Simeon prophesied, this child is going to be for the rising and falling of many, and a sword will pierce his heart. That's what she's watching now. She's watching the sword pierce his heart. She'd heard him preach. She'd watched him as he walked on water. He, she had listened to him and watched him as he healed, as he fed thousands, as he called, no doubt, Lazarus from the grave. And yet, the sword is piercing his heart, and Jesus has his mother on his mind. That's God. She loved him with a love that only she could have experienced. She was the mother of the Messiah. She raised him. She witnessed his tranquility. She witnessed his love instead of hostility. His wisdom instead of doubts. She adored him. She worshipped him. I love my mother Great mother, great mom, but I can assure you my mother has never worshipped me or any of her other two brothers or sisters, and she shouldn't have. But Mary worships the Christ. Next slide. She's at his mangled feet. She's washing as the prophesied sword pierces his heart. She weeps. She's bound by her love for Christ. But she shows no hysteria. She listens as the crowd mocks, as the two criminals spout and spit and yell and scream at him. Save yourself. As the Sanhedrin, many of them would ride on their donkeys around Golgotha's hill and watch and say, hey, if you're the son of God, come down. She saw all this. She listened while the crowds mock his agony and bleeding, and Mary, his mother, is silent. Yet in all this horror, Christ remembered to commit her into the care of John. He's dying, and his mother's on his mind. We're to live selflessly with others on our minds. Just before my dad passed into eternity, I remember him saying to me, he called me over, and he said, Son, take care of your mother. Because he knew he was dying. Take care of your mother. Turn to Matthew, excuse me, Mark chapter 15. Takeaway there in John's gospel is living selflessly with others on our mind. The fourth statement from the cross 
and it's a powerful one as all of these are. Now, verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lame sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just shortly before this, he had prayed for his enemies. Now he says, God, you have left me. He told John, don't leave my mother. But I fear the alienation from my father. What lesson is this? Christ fully understood the seriousness of sin, far greater than you and I. Forsaken assumes a, a relationship that's been violated. That's why he cries. In this. this is Aramaic, by the way. This is a Greek, Aramaic language. It indicates the pathos of forsakenness. His intimacy had been severed from his father. He told John to be to take care of his blessed mother for all the while losing the intimacy that he had never lost before with his father. The greatest torture of Jesus was not from the lacerations on his back or the nails or the thorns, but from the agonizing loss of fellowship with the Father. We forget that. We, we concentrate so much on the physical, the physical terror and persecution his body endured, but there was mental anguish as well. Jesus took the sins of the world on his shoulders. He became sin for us. He experienced the true torment of hell, which is alienation from God the Father. Yes, hell is horrid, but the worst thing about hell is there's no hope because there is alienation from the triune God. Next slide. We are the aliens, not Christ. Ephesians 2, Paul would write that in at uh, that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's you and I. That's what Jesus did for you and I. But now, in Christ Jesus, you were who, who were far off, I've mentioned before, over the horizon, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're aliens, not Christ. In anguish, Jesus cried, my God, my God. It's the only time in Scripture where Jesus did not, when he prayed, he called, his, he called to his Father and he called, said, Heavenly Father. Only time in Scripture where he calls him, my God, my God. He cried out because of his alienation. God hates sin. Never, ever forget. Teach that to your children to the day you die. God hates sin. He hates the sin of pride ad infinitum. He hates it. And he is not going to allow those that are unrighteous into his kingdom. Not going to allow those that are unrighteous into his kingdom. And God hates the consequence of death that it produces. 
Christ had seen the power of sin in, hum- in humanity. He's experiencing it now. He'd sensed the gravity of sin in his incarnation. He's subject now to the Father's wrath because of the seriousness of my sin. Waves of physical darkness, the Gospels record, had descended over him like a morbid drape. The spiritual darkness swept over him. It's what we see here is dark until about the ninth hour. Sin's debilitating urgency swallows him up. He felt it in Gethsemane as his capillaries shattered, and he swept uh, 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 bled rather great drops of blood. Yes. My God, why did you forsake me? He feels sin the way only a holy God can. He was experiencing the soul that sins it shall die. Next slide. His half-brother would say, sin brings forth death. The God-man was dying, experiencing alienation. Sin, first of all, deceives, then it destroys, and then it kills. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus doesn't become a sinner. We'll talk about that next week. But he's made sin for us, 2 Corinthians tells us. There's no deceit from his mouth. There's no yelling, no screaming at his tormentors. He is saddened and crushed because his father turned his back to prohibit taking his life prematurely. We're told, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews chapter 13 and 1 Peter 5. So we read this morning, casting all your cares on him for he cares for you. That is the promise of God. The fifth thing, John 19, I'm just going to read this one. I'm thirsty. So after all this, he thirsts. His body had become dehydrated. What's the lesson here? It teaches us that he is a human, truly human, truly God. He's human. He hungered, he thirsty, he grew tired, he fell asleep. He was sad, he was grieved, he was groaned, he anguishes here. Uh, His humanity is on full display. I thirst, he said. Why do we focus on thirst? Because water, he said, I'm the water of life, and because water is necessary to life. The water of life became dehydrated for you and I. If you've ever been dehydrated, it's, it's a horrible thing. It causes you to hallucinate. It can cause you to pass out. It eventually, obviously, can kill you. In Hebrews 2, the Bible says he's a merciful and faithful high priest. He suffered in all things that, like we have suffered. He sympathizes with us. He knows what it is to be human, and he understands. And he did all of this from the cross. Jesus, it is said, did not die in bed. Next slide. The sixth thing in John 19.30 and other passages of Scripture, it is finished. 
So what does this teach us? Christ died completing the work of salvation that he chose and God the Father gave him to do. He chose to do this. He wasn't forced. He wasn't conscripted. He volunteered. This is a cry of of triumph. My work is done, he says. In the Greek, it's one word, tetelestii. It is finished. It's found twice in John 19. In verse 28, when it talks about it having completed his work, he said, I thirst, that was the word, tetelestii, and then he cries uh, that uh, it is finished. Sinclair Ferguson had a marvelous statement about this. He said, having completed the work that Adam failed to do, Jesus did what Adam refused to do. He bowed his head. He bowed his head. Humility can be defined as a bowing of our heads or falling prostrate before, prostrate before the Lord Jesus Christ. The word there that is used is something that was used by commercial guys as they made transactions. It would be written on the bottom as we write paid in full. This word would be written there. I mean, everything was paid. And that's what Christ said. I've done everything. It's complete. And here's another thing Ferguson said, for Christ is the gardener that Adam failed to be. Wow. Christ is the gardener that Ernie failed to be. This lesson is simple. Finish the work Christ gave you to do. There is no statute of limitations on age for a believer. Finish the work. Paul said, I've run the race, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. Finish your race. Paul would write to the church of Galatia, churches of Galatia, he said, you, you ran well, what has hindered you? Don't let anything, don't, do not let Satan hinder you. Christ went all the way to the cross. He said, it is finished. Be men and women of faith. And then finally in Luke 23 and 46, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He died trusting himself to his righteous father. That's what Peter says. To his righteous father, the cup of wrath was drained The storm of divine fury was over. The darkness was past. And fellowship with the Father was waiting. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And Jesus dies. Peter reminds us in verse 23 of this chapter, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Have you done that this morning? Have you committed yourself to the one that has judges righteously? We can be assured when we stand before God the Father on the day of judgment, or before the uh, Son of God on that 
Bema C. Judge. We are going to be judged righteously. We have nothing to be fearful of. Next slide, if you would, brother. The reviled one dies and returns to his righteous father. He's different now. The Gospels explain to us as much of his difference as we can understand. But he's different now when he's resurrected. He was innocent, sinless, trusted himself to the Father that once the judgment was over, that God would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. He prayed in Gethsemane, Father, restore to me the joy I had with you before the foundation of the world began. I have finished the work that you gave me to do. And that's what Peter is saying. You trust God for the promise of resurrection because God judges righteously. What do we learn from this? These seven things we are to forgive because the suffering Christ forgave. We are to be concerned for souls because the suffering Christ cared for my soul. We are to live selfless lives because the suffering Christ selflessly remembered his mother. We're to live in the care of the Trinity because the suffering Christ called to God the Father. We're to live in his sympathy because the suffering Jesus knows our human need. We're to live productive lives on the way to our death because the suffering Jesus finished his work. All the way to our death. We don't live into our 70s or 80s or 90s and then say, well, I'm done. Bill and Pat Preston, both approaching 90. Almost every Sunday they're here. Sunday school and worship. And many of the folks here at Flat Creek over the years have done that. And we are to live trusting lives because the suffering Jesus trusted God the Father to judge him and the whole world righteously. Close with this. Next slide. The novelist Dorothy Sayer lived in the first part of the 20th century. She wrote this. This becomes commonplace to us, does it not? Oh, it's so commonplace. She said, nobody cares nowadays that Jesus was scourged.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that though you were reviled, you did not spit out anguish in return to those that tormented you. You suffered praying. You suffered saving. You suffered remembering your mother. You suffered in your thirst. You suffered in your alienation. And you suffered as you gave up the ghost. Oh, we will never, ever repay you. But we thank you for your grace. Have your sweet will, your divine way in the remainder of the service today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to sing one verse of a closing hymn this morning. The message has illumined for us the suffering of Christ. Because to this you were called, Peter said. Peter wasn't there. Perhaps he watched from afar, but that's never recorded anywhere. But he had mocked his Savior. Thankfully, the Lord forgave him. Thankfully, the Lord called him. He became a great apostle and prophet to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord as Savior, don't leave this place without that assurance. As we sing, make your way out of the pew, we can take you to a private prayer room and lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here today as a child of of God, the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church Uh, by either statement of faith or perhaps you need to follow the Lord and believe his baptism, we encourage you to do that as a child of God, a righteous father. He's our father, and he's righteous, thankfully. And we can make our way to the righteous father because the son was reviled. What number, Brother Vance?